Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask and pray that you would give us grace to, uh, to have our minds uh, rightly framed to enter into this most <laughs> serious of matters, uh, the matters of judgment upon falsehood and the matters of judgment upon sin. <laughs> give us grace, we would ask, Father, that we might be free from the sins that we read of on, this, on the pages of Scripture today. And help us, we pray, Father, to stand like Noah. Help us, we pray, Father, to be grieved even as Lot was over the sins not only of society, but over our own sins as well. So grant these things, Father, we ask. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what I want to do here in this passage of Scripture is to set before you, as I said before, uh, this primary theme, this primary principle, that God will bring judgment upon the false teachers who exploit those for whom Christ has suffered and died. God will bring judgment upon false teachers who exploit the church of Jesus Christ. And that's the thing that we've seen through this point so far, is that these false teachers have come into the church of Jesus Christ. In one sense, they've snuck in. Is that Peter's reference to their coming in privily. There is a sense in which they come in, not under the... Under the uh, full uh, explanation of what they are all about, but they are using these feigned words. You remember the, the expression that that's taken from last week. We considered that, that little phrase, feigned words, and the Greek literally means plastic words. And you remember what we said about plastic words. Plastic, you can shape it any way you want, and that's what false teachers do. False teachers find something in you that appeals to, to the baser nature within us. And they use these plastic words to pry in. And really, when it's all said and done, to pry in just to separate you from their goods, you from your goods, in order to give to them. These men are that crass. These men are that, uh, that simple in their approach. And whatever else we've seen by way of some of the more sensual aspects and of their sin by way of sexuality and all of that, when it's all said and done, the driving motive of these men is greed. They want what you have. Whereas the true shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, what does he desire for you? He desires your eternal salvation. What does he do for you? He dies and he bleeds for you. And all those who, whom he raises up to preach that, that message should, in truth, have that same attitude toward your soul. That they are concerned with what is, what, what, they are concerned not with what is yours, but with you. And so again, these men, these false teachers, they, they will find themselves in the very presence of the judgment of God unless they repent. Now, it's never a very, it's never a very uh, encouraging thing to continually have to make the theme of God's judgment uh, a theme of preaching, but it's a necessary thing. We are not being faithful to the word of God if we are not addressing uh, those places in Scripture where God calls out sin to be judged. And this is one of those places where we are seeing it. And we, as we approach the theme of judgment, we can say two things. Number one, we know that it is a fact that God judges sin. We see this. We, we've seen this on the pages of Scripture. We've uh, kind of experienced it when we look at history. We see those times that seem to have the mark of God's judgment upon them. But also when we think about judgment, and when we think about justice in the true sense of the word, there is something deep within the nature of men and women as persons that identify with righteous judgment. I think it was the, uh, the political philosopher uh, Thomas Hobbes who said that justice is giving to every man his due. 
not only by way of what he's earned positively, but why, by way of what he has done negatively, incurring wrath of society or even the wrath of God upon him. Justice is an essential element of human nature and of human relationships as well. And so the justice of God and the judgment of God upon sin is not strange even to unconverted ears. But to those of us who embrace the word of God and who see what the scriptures teach, we know and we understand that the judgment of God is a reality that all men must one day stand before God. False teachers, again, it, is a, it will be a woeful day for them unless they repent. Why? Because in this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Peter will show us three historical examples of God's judgment upon the wicked. This passage of Scripture, in one sense, is not an easy passage to preach. This passage of Scripture brings the bear before our thinking and our conscience, the reality that God will not even spare a world of sinners. It's an amazing thing we're going to see here. And so we have to interact with this. We have to interact with it from the standpoint of how we see it on the page of Scripture. But we also have to interact with it how we see it within the overall teaching of the Word of God. And so we'll develop these things as we go along. I'm going to divide the, uh, the passage of Scripture that we're looking at in two basic, uh, two basic points. Number one, we're going to see the, the reality of specific judgments upon false teachers. Specific judgments upon false teachers. You remember the reading that uh, Rick read uh, in our hearing uh, in Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 6, I believe it was? You remember where God was calling out the shepherds in that day? And in the reference there, of course, you know it wasn't shepherds of, uh, of sheep. It was the shepherds of God's people. They did not heal them. They, they did not seek after them. They, didn't, they did not seek their good. But what they did do is they tried to exploit the people for their own ends. And again, you must understand, God brings judgment on such men. And so we're going to take a look at specific judgments on false prophets. But also we're going to take a look at what I would call, and this term may be somewhat new to you, uh, what I would call God's signal judgments throughout history. God's signal judgments throughout history. Now what do I mean by signal judgments? Well, signal judgment of God is a specific Judgment that God enacts that is showing his particular uh, uh, wrath against a particular type of sin. So it stands as an example. It stands out in one sense declaring before the whole world that this is the specific thing that God is angry at. And that's why, again, we saw, I believe it's there in verse 6, where, where Peter says this, uh, the second part of uh, verse 6, making an example unto those that after should live ungodly. There are specific judgments that stand as examples in human history. So we'll take a look at this idea of signal judgments. But the first thing that I want to do with you today is to kind of go back just a little bit to what we considered last week. And I hope you don't mind this kind of, it'll be something of a lengthy review. And the reason why we're doing this is because last week we really didn't get to our final point. Last week our final point was this, that even though false teachers enjoy temporary success, you remember the, the, the phraseology, many shall follow their pernicious ways, there's their success. They are able to have people follow them, and they are able to have people, again, give them what they want. But yet the scripture says their doom is certain. It doesn't wait. It's not sleeping. And what Peter's doing there, he's using kind of an interesting picture, uh, an interesting word picture. And he's putting within our thinking that these false teachers think that somehow because judgment has not come immediately, therefore judgment will not come. 
It's that old saying that we know, you know, that, that when a judgment or when justice is delayed, uh, they think that people think that justice will never come. Matthew Henry has a, has a very, um, has a very uh, interesting uh, uh, note on this uh, by, way of the, uh, by way of this uh, uh, judgment not coming immediately. He says the following. He says, men are apt to think that a reprieve is the forerunner of a pardon. And that if judgment be not speedily executed, it is or will be reversed. But the apostle tells us that how successful and prosperous soever a false teacher may be, and that for a time, yet their judgment will not linger. And the idea is this, and when Peter says, their judgment sleepeth not. These false teachers think that justice is like a man, like a guard, who is asleep at his station. They don't realize that justice is marching slowly toward them and that their judgment will certainly come. That's Peter's specific point. They may think they're getting away with it. They may be, quote unquote, laughing all the way to the bank. But there's coming a day when judgment will certainly fall. And that's the point that Peter wants to make here. Now, again, this idea, as I said before, of judgment is not necessarily an easy thing to get to enter into. And the reason why I'm bringing this out is because Again, as we deal with the concept of judgment that's on the pages of Scripture that's in front of us, we have to make sure that we never lose sight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is not only a message of judgment and condemnation, it is a message of redemption. And so I want to put in your ears this morning some truths of Scripture to take with you, even as you view this passage of Scripture and deal with it as you must. A passage of scripture, again, like Ezekiel 30, uh, 33, verse 11. And listen to what God says to the people. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Do you hear God pleading with his people? Do you hear God bending over backwards as it were? Dear God, again, again, condescending and saying, why will you die? Please, don't you understand what the end of your ways will be? This is God speaking here. This is God, can I put it this way, pouring himself out to his people, coming down to their level and saying, please return, please repent. Another passage of scripture reminds us of this, of this desire in God to see the conversion, even of the wicked. Lamentations 3, verse 33. Jeremiah says this concerning God. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. You see, there are those times when God does afflict. There are those times when God brings judgment. But these are, these are not things that God is just sitting in heaven. Just, he just can't wait for that day to come. No, again, God is, is, is calling and God is pouring out himself in order that sinners might repent. One more passage of scripture again from uh, 2 Peter. We'll see this in, in, in uh, weeks or months to come. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Oh, you see, aren't you glad that in a day where you have in your hearing the reality of the judgment of God upon wicked men, that God still says from the same holy word that he desires the salvation of all. He desires your salvation and my salvation. He desires you to break off from your sin. He desires me to break off from my sin. And he, do you hear his voice? Oh, why will you die? Turn ye, turn ye, he says. And aren't you glad that that's the message that you can bring to your friends? 
Aren't you glad that that's the message you can bring to your loved ones? Aren't you glad that no matter how many times people offend and sin against God, and even you sometimes, that you can still go back to them and say, Oh, why will you, why will you die? Turn ye, turn ye from your sin. But this reality, again, is in the Word of God, and this is one of the things that we always have to do with the Scripture, isn't it? We have to make sure that the Scripture speaks, if I can put it this way, in the full symphony that it is. You know what a symphony is, don't you? It's, a, it's not just one instrument playing, but it's an entire, it's an entire well, symphony. It, there are not a number of instruments playing. And it's the same thing with the Word of God. There are, many, there are many voices, as it were. And on the one page, we have God pleading with sinners. And on the other page, we have God saying, if you do not repent, judgment will come. And we have to preach both. Again, you've, you've heard me say this before. The mark of the false teacher is that he'll, he'll form those plastic words. He knows the people that are in front of him. He's, he's subtle enough to figure out who's there. And he'll use these plastic words, the form, the form words, that just what you want to hear. And say, oh, isn't that a great preacher? Oh, isn't that a nice man? Oh, I think I'll give him this. And, I think, and what does he need? I'll do anything for him. You see, the word of God is the standard. And so again, we have to bring out the, this other element in the nature of God. And as I said before, everything by way of God, appealing to sinners uh, to, to repent, and yet, we know, and yet we know and understand that there is a certain just, justice and propriety to the righteous judgment of God falling on those who not only know the truth, but who reject it and who use the truth and twist it for their own personal gain. Now this is amazing, isn't it? I think even your unsaved friends would have very little use for those who are truly false teachers. I think even your unsaved friends would say, if anybody should face the judgment of God, it would be those who, who, who misuse and who pervert the word of God. And so there is a sense of propriety, even in the concept of the justice and the righteousness of God. You know, Paul makes mention of this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. He says this, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. It is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to those who would abuse the church of Jesus Christ or trouble the church of Jesus Christ. The psalmist in Psalm 9 verse 8 says this, and he shall judge the world in righteousness. Yes, there is a time in which God will judge the world in righteousness. And until that time, what is God's voice to the world? Turn ye, turn ye. Why will you die, he says. Acts 17 verse 31, the apostle Paul he is a, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man, Jesus Christ, whom he has ordained, whereof he has given assurance unto all men and that he has raised him from the dead. You see, the apostle Paul points to the Lord Jesus Christ and he says, look at this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and look at the testimony that God laid upon him. And the testimony that God laid upon him was essentially this. He raised him from the dead. Yes, he raised him from the dead. He set his seal upon him. You know, sometimes we go to our notary publics and they, and they put their seal on, on our papers, don't they? And it means, again, it, what, what was there is true. And it's the same thing with God's raising up Jesus Christ from the dead. It's his stamp of notary public that everything that Jesus said and did was true. And so again, he, he raises Jesus from the dead. There is this day that is coming. Well, again, what we see here then is, is the fact that... Uh, this judgment that is coming upon false teachers will indeed be a righteous judgment. That brings us back to our doctrine, our main principle, our main point. God will bring judgment upon the false teachers who exploit those for whom Christ has suffered and died. The end of the false teacher is not a good end should they remain unrepented in their sins. 
So let's take a look then at the specific judgment uh, that we see here on false teachers. And again, that's, that brings us back again to the, uh, to the end of verse, th- uh, to the end of verse three, uh, whose judgment now a long time lingers not and their damnation slumbereth not. I've already spoken to you about the picture that's here. Uh, these men in some way, shape or form, they think because God's wrath has not fallen upon them immediately, they think that they're going to that they're going to get away with it. They think that because God's judgment is not experienced right now, that somehow it will never come. But what this passage of Scripture reminds us is that not only the judgment will come, but it will come specifically in a very serious way on those who pervert the word of God. And what it reminds us of is this. The man who stands in a pulpit and, and says that he proclaims the truth of God comes under a very serious judgment. And I understand, I'm saying this to you, and I understand who I'm talking about right now. I'm the one who's preaching to you right now. I'm aware of the fact that James says, My brethren, be not many masters or teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. God deals in a very particular way with those who claim to take his word in their mouth. And so again, these false teachers, they overlook this. These false teachers, again, they don't think about the the judgment to come. They only think of what they can get here and now. But their judgment sleeps not. They may think that their executioner is asleep, but their, execu- uh, their executioner is slowly walking toward them. So again, that's the reality then of judgment upon false teachers. I don't want you to lose sight of that. It's something that we see. And again, it's part of this reality of judgment upon false teachers that I would say to you and that any man who would be truly preaching the word of God would say to you, make sure you avoid these men. Make sure you stay away from the... Number one, these men are exploiting you. Number two, you will be drawn in to the error. And that's never a good thing. So learn to discern what you hear, what you read, what you see. Be faithful to the word of God. Can I ask you to do this? Oh, you must do this. Can I ask you to submit your mind, your soul, and everything about you to the authority of the scripture? You see, the scripture will not lead you, or lead you wrong. There is the Lord Jesus Christ as the great shepherd of the sheep. I'm glad I can say that this morning. I'm glad I don't have to say, you need to listen to me. I'm glad I can set before you an open Bible and and the Spirit of God who works within you. I'm glad you can, and I'm glad you can take the Word of God and you can discern for yourself and you can come to me and say, preacher, what are you talking about here? Is that really what the Word of God has to say? You know, you can do that. You have an open Bible in front of you. You have the Spirit of God in you. And so again, this, this reality of, of false teachers and the, and the seriousness of, uh, of the matter that they are dealing with, oh, how they forget it. And so what Peter does in order to stress the seriousness of it, he doesn't just say something like I said right now. What he does is he brings together, he pulls together three signal judgments in history. Three signal judgments in history. Let's get back to this idea of a signal judgment. What is that? Let me see if I can give you a little bit of a little bit of information here. What is a signal judgment? A signal signal judgments are specific judgments of God intended to both inflict specific judgment upon transgressors in in a moment in that moment, but also which act as a sign against any who would commit similar sins under similar circumstances. So you understand that a signal judgment is actual judgment in time. But it's also intended by way of its notability to set it out as an example of any who would sin in the same fashion. 
So therefore, a signal judgment would be the, the judgments that we see here. The judgment of God on the angels that sinned. The judgment of God on the, uh, on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The judgment of God on the, the, wor- the, 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 the earth at that time. These are signal judgments set out by God. That's why, again, not only in 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 6, do we read about this idea of judgment as an example, but also in Jude uh, chapter 1, verse 7, Jude says this, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, and here's the point, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. That's a signal judgment. That judgment in and of itself serves to signal that God will judge that particular sin and any sin that we see here. And we're going to bring out a number of sins here. And so again, these signal judgments. Now, one of the things that you need to understand about a signal judgment or judgment of this nature is that while signal judgments are severe in their actual uh, occurrence, they do not fully exhaust the wrath of God against that particular sin. Do you understand why I opened up the sermon? Why will you die in your sins? Do you understand why I opened up the sermon? God does not afflict willingly. Do you understand why I opened up the sermon saying, God is not willing that any should perish? Do you understand what we're dealing with here? These signal judgments are not things, are, are, are not things to be just read over lightly. And in the context of false teachers, Peter is bringing the bear in our ears what the end of these men will be. And so again, listen to this passage of Scripture. Signal judgments. They are the occurrence of God's judgment, but they don't exhaust God's judgment. Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 12. The Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth. Now again, this was Israel's sin. God was bringing the the nations against Israel because of their sin. Sin, national, you've heard me say this before, national sins bring national judgments. And listen to what we see here. And yet for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. What's the meaning there? God was bringing, again, judgment upon Israel for their sin. And yet, even in that time of judgment, his hand was stretched out still. In other words, judgment was still, there was still more judgment to come. Signal judgment did not necessarily exhaust the wrath of God against that particular sin. The same thing in verse 17 of the ninth chapter. Therefore the Lord shall have no joy in their young men, neither shall he have mercy on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Verse 21 Manasseh, Ephraim, Ephraim, Manasseh, and they together shall be against Judah. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. What are we seeing here? You see signal judgments or severe judgments. But even though they are severe judgments in time, they do not exhaust the wrath of God against particular sins. So we're dealing with very, very serious things here. We're not dealing with the type of wrath that can be joked about. We're not dealing about the type of anger in God that maybe could be the the punchline of a joke. We're dealing with very serious and eternal matters here. Brothers and sisters, can I say it this way? We are looking into eternity this morning and we're seeing the end of those 
who abuse the gospel of Jesus Christ for their own ends. These men are disdainful. May God keep us from them and may God keep us from being them. So again, this this introduces us to another type of sin. We've we've talked about signal judgments. Well, well, signal judgments introduce us to a a category of sins that we read about in the scriptures that you may or may not be familiar with. In a sense, I, I, I almost apologize for introducing two new concepts to you this morning. Uh, the one concept of a signal judgment, you may not have heard that before, it's not unique to me, but there's another concept that's here, that's implied here, and that is the concept of crying sins. Now, what is a crying sin? Well, very briefly, a crying sin is a sin of such a nature, and it's evil that it cries out for the judgment of God. There are such sins. Listen to these that we see. Again, you remember in, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, when, when, um, when, when, when Cain slew Abel, you remember what, what God said to, to Cain? He says, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Your brother's blood cries out for justice. That sin of murder was a crying sin. We see it the same thing in, in Genesis 18 concerning, again, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 18, uh, verse 20, uh, where, where God says, I will go and see whether this thing is true, for the sins of Sodom cry out. Well, you see, there are certain sins that, again, cry out for the justice of God. Another, another crying sin, and, and this may be, um, this may be uh, strange for us to hear. In the book of James, chapter 5, verse 4, you know what James says to, to employers or to masters? You know what James says? He says, if you withhold your wages from those who have worked for that wage, that will though that injustice will cry out to me and I will judge. The withholding of what belongs to a person is a crying sin. We also see it in Exodus 22 where those who are oppressed, God sees, and, and that sin of oppression cries out for judgment. And so these crying sins, crying sins bringing these signal judgments. And I think it's an amazing thing that when Peter talks about these false teachers, he does it in this kind of a framework. He doesn't set it off as some, some, some slight sin. And I don't think, you know, if these guys really knew better, I mean, they're sincere and they had the right thing in mind. They don't have the right thing in mind. Their greed is what they have in mind. And they will exploit you in order to further their greed. And that's what Peter is bringing out here. This is, again, this, these, these signal judgments, these crying sins, they set the context for God's judgment on the false teachers. Again, it's, this, this reality is eye-opening and should serve as a reminder that we should not be caught up in other men's sins. What does Paul say to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22? Lay hands on no man suddenly, neither be a partaker of other men's sins. Stay away from the sins of these false teachers. And so again, then, that's the judgment of God in general. That's the introduction of the concept of signal sin, excuse me, signal judgments and crying sins. Let's take a look then at each of the, each of the signal judgment that, judgments that Peter lays out here. Look then at verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down into hell and delivered them in the chains of darkness to be reserved to judgment. The first signal judgment that Peter brings before our thinking is something that sounds somewhat strange to our ears. It is the judgment of God upon the angels. 
Now, there are two places in Scripture where we see a rebellion by way of angels against the authority of God. One is that rebellion that took place uh, before the creation of Adam and Eve, uh, where Satan, again, in some way or another, was able to persuade a third of the angels to join in rebellion against God Almighty. How this was ever able to happen, we don't know. But what? A, and I'm not trying to be funny here. Oh, but what a preacher Lucifer must have been to be that persuasive. Angels that had this clear vision of who God is and yet to be swept away by that, uh, by that fallen creature's uh, uh, subtlety. The other place we see it is in a very, uh, a very, a, a very uh, 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 an unusual place in, in Genesis 6, 4, where, where there seems to be an intimation that the angels uh, transgressed the boundaries that God had set by way of angels and humans. It's something of, a, of an unusual thing. But either way, what we're seeing here is that God is bringing, God did bring judgment upon the angels of sin. Now, what's Peter trying to bring out with this? When he talks about the angels that sin. What's really, what is he really trying to get at? And I think essentially what he's trying to get at is this. No matter how exalted the being, no matter how exalted the individual, and the way Peter writes it, it's not if the angels sinned, he writes it like this. Angels sinned. In other words, if angels sin and don't escape the judgment of God, you think these guys are going to escape the judgment of God? If nobility of nature doesn't exempt you from the judgment of God, false teachers need to listen. And there are many who think that that the false teachers of that day would have been men of renown, that they would have been uh, extraordinary men, that they would have uh, had all of the the fame that we can maybe uh, think that they would have had. And what Peter is saying is this, I don't care who they are. And again, I'm not trying to be funny, but there's a sense in which Peter is saying this. You know, you, you, want to, you want to sin like the big guys? Well, you'll be judged with the big guys. You think the angels got away, got away with it? You better take a look in the word of God and see what it says. That, that word that you take and use for your own ends. And so again, Peter's point is that no matter how noble a person may be, he will not escape the judgment of God. The second judgment that Peter brings before us, the second signal judgment, is again found in verse 5. And we see this, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, what we're seeing here is, again, that reference to the, uh, to the flood given in the book of Genesis, in, in Genesis 6 and in Genesis 7, Genesis 8, uh, that whole reference to God's destroying of the world at that time. Now, there are a couple of things that really kind of um, jar our thinking when we hear some of the languages being used here. And what first jars our thinking is the fact that a world of sinners were destroyed by the righteous wrath of God. We think in our day, well, God would never destroy a world of sinners. That's not what the Bible tells us. And we are people, you've heard it. You may have said it yourself. I've probably said it in my day. May God correct me for it. We say things like this. Well, my God would never do that. Well, my friends, your God might not. But the God of the Bible did. You understand? It's not for us to impose on God what's right for him to do. And so it, it, it jars us that, that God destroyed a, a world of sinners. And what's Peter trying to point out? Remember he said that many will follow their pernicious ways? And what Peter is saying is this. I don't care if the whole world follows these guys. Judgment is still coming. 
In other words, the nobility will not exempt them from judgment like the angels, neither will the number exempt them from judgment like the world at that time. But there's something else that kind of jars us in this passage of Scripture and the language of it. And did you notice it again? Look at verse, at verse 5. And spared not the old world. Spared. World. You see, in the New Testament, when we have those two words together, how do they come together? You see, in the New Testament, and in the person of Jesus Christ, it is God who will spare not his own son in order order that the world might be saved. You see what's happening here. Again, in the Old Testament, what we see, and I'm not trying to set up a, uh, some kind of a uh, division between, quote-unquote, the God of the Old Testament and God. I'm not doing that at all. But what I want you to see is that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in and through the work of Jesus Christ, we have the emphasis now that God would not spare his own son in order that the world might be saved. Oh, isn't it a wonderful way to see a glimpse of the, a glimmer of the gospel, even against this backdrop of a signal judgment? Isn't this a wonderful thing to see? And there's another beautiful lesson in here as well. Though the whole world goes astray, there was no a preacher of righteousness. And though all your friends go astray, and though, and, and though you may find yourself in a church, and again, may, may God, this never happens here, though you may find yourself in a church where the whole congregation is embraced error, you be a preacher of righteousness. You stand for truth in the fallen world. Oh, how we thank God. How we thank God that the only times we use these words, spare and world, we don't have to join them together in that passage of Scripture, though we will. But we can also say that God, again, spared not his own son. Why? In order, this, in, in order that a world of sinners might be saved. Oh, how we thank God for the, for, the, for, the, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, like I said before, if the first signal judgment is showing that no matter what the nobility of an, indiv- of an individual will be, if he, if he, if he, if he, if he uh, is guilty of the sin of the false teachers, he will be judged. And, and, and the second point, no matter what the number might be, we see that they will be judged as well. And that brings us then to the third signal judgment in this passage of Scripture. And that is, uh, again, found in uh, verse 6. And we see this, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them with an overthrow, making them an example of those that should afterwards live ungodly. Well, again, the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, again, these sins are, are very well known, aren't they, on the pages of history and even in our own present context and in our own present culture. We understand that the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were, 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 were sexual sins, particularly the sin of homosexuality. And we see that while these sins were, again, their crying sins, we might say, we also see in the word of God that these cities were guilty of other sins as well. We see this in Ezekiel 16, verse 49. And we read this. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And now what's very interesting here is this. So oftentimes this passage of scripture in Ezekiel 16 is, is introduced in order to somewhat lessen of the sin of homosexuality of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the, and the idea is this. The, the, the primary sin wasn't the sexual sin. The primary sin was the social sin. That the primary sin was this failure, again, to show what we would call this kind of a social kindness or social righteousness. Again, pride, fullness of bread, abundance and idleness uh, was in her. But what's interesting is this. In the Ezekiel passage, the term Sodom is really being used to express or to identify the northern kingdom of Israel during the time of the divided kingdom. 
In other words, what God is saying through the prophet Ezekiel, he is not so much saying, oh yeah, by the way, in the middle of my judgment against the northern kingdom, I want to tell you something about Sodom and Genesis. No, what he's saying is that the sins of the northern kingdom were such that they paralleled the social sins of Sodom of old. So in the Ezekiel passage, the primary reference is the northern kingdom of Israel, not the city of Sodom. But these sins were there in the city of Sodom as well. And so understand this. Should a society embrace uh, the sexual sin that, that Sodom did, judgment will come. Should a society embrace the social sins that Sodom embraced, judgment will come. That's the idea here. These are signal judgments. These are the very things that God is expressing his wrath and his anger against. And what do we see here? We see here that no matter how, what do we see here in this, uh, that Peter's trying to convey in this particular judgment? And it's essentially this. No matter how much people join together might agree on certain practices, if God has expressed judgment upon them, then judgment will fall. What's Peter doing here? Why is he bringing out these signal judgments? Why is he mentioning these crying sins? Because he wants you and me to understand how serious false teaching is in the church. All of those examples only serve to set the platform to raise the bar as to how serious the sin of false teaching is. Do we think about false teaching along those lines? Do we think that false teaching is is, is a greater sin than the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Do we think that false teaching is, is a greater sin uh, than, than, than the sin that was there when, when God uh, flooded the world? Do we think of these things? No, we think false teaching is something we kind of, kind of got to be careful of. Brothers and sisters, you have to be very, very cautious concerning this reality. And so again, in this passage of Scripture, these are the things that the Apostle is bringing out. But what's interesting, and we're going to get to this next week, more than this week, this is what I want you to see. And this is where I have the if I can say it this way, the joy of being able to enter into something of a pastoral application here now. Let's go on. We're going to come back to this next week, but let's go on. Look at verse 7. And delivered just Lot. And delivered just Lot. And delivered just Lot. There was the sin. Judgment was coming. But what did God do? God delivered his own. Lot. We're going to take a look at Lot. In some sense, we're surprised to see him in this passage of Scripture, but he's there. And what I want you to see is this. You see, this whole thing of you being kept, this whole thing of you embracing truth and righteousness, this whole thing, when it's all said and done, is the work of God in your soul. And the point that Peter is making here is this. God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. He knows how to deliver his people. And how we thank God for that. I don't want you to be unnerved by what you're hearing here today. I don't want you to think that there, and if there is no hope for the, for the angel, how can there be any hope for me? I can understand you thinking that way. I think that way sometimes myself. I don't want you to think that if the whole world is going away astray, how can I remain faithful? Very difficult, isn't it? Amen. The, the, the word of God. And so again, what I want you to see here is that God is able to keep his own. That's the point that Peter is making here. That in spite of all of the uh, evil activity of these false teachers. And oh, please watch out for them. Again, as I said before, you remember we read that, uh, we read that little excerpt from, the, uh, from that ancient uh, uh, Christian writing, the Didache. And you remember what it said, if, if, if anybody says to you, speaking in the Spirit, give me money, give it, not them. 
think that guy was writing after what he saw on a TV program. If anybody's saying, speaking in the Spirit, give me money, how many times do you see that? And so again, we need to be very, very, very cautious for these men. But there are a number of things that I want you to see here by way of, by way of again, pastoral applications, if you'll allow me to make them. And the first application I want you to see is this. You need to understand that the less there are of people who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, the more important are those who do follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand? When the world goes astray, the one who stands is the most important man in the world. When the mighty and the noble go astray, the one who stands faithful is the most important one, no matter what the evaluation of society might be. So I want you to understand that the people of God, though at times they are a very small number in a society, they're vital for the well-being of that society. And so don't be ashamed, if I can put it this way, to look around and say, it's just me and my friend. We're the only ones there at work that know anything about the gospel. And, and I go to church and it's just a few of us here. Listen, my friends, and I'm not trying to make an excuse for small numbers. May God bless us with great numbers. In one sense... <laughs> You ready for your pastor to say this? And what's this? I don't care about the numbers. May, the, may God make us faithful to his word. So in a day when, again, a day when the majority are, are defecting from the truth, those who stand, again, are the most important. And this reminds us of the, of the importance of maintaining the truth in the day and age in which we live. This is why false teaching is not to be toyed with. We're dealing with eternal things here. You have, by way of the word of God, that which is necessary for the well-being of those that you love. And should this message be perverted by men or by women who have, uh, at the end of the day, only your goods and not your good in mind, you understand the signal judgments. But the examples, again, of these signal judgments also remind us of a number of things. Number one, it reminds us that there can be a faithful group within a defecting group. Not all the angels followed after Lucifer, did they? They were those who were faithful, brothers and sisters, that may that be us. Secondly, we learned that even in a day where the world has gone into unrighteousness, there can be a man or even a woman who can declare the righteousness of God. Be a preacher of righteousness in your generation. And thirdly, it reminds us of Lot, and we'll pick this up next week. What did we learn from Lot? Well, we can say at least this about Lot. At least Lot was that man who was grieved with the sin that was around him. This is a great challenge for us in our day. This is a great challenge for us. In many ways, society is not asking you to, to, to engage in, in all the things that the Word of God says are sinful. But there are sinful things that the, word, that, the, that, that the Word of God declares to be sinful that society is asking you to approve. But Lot was grieved. Lot was hurt. Lot was smitten by it. And you know when it was all said and done, that was the only thing that identified Lot as a righteous man. There he was living in the midst of it. We don't hear him like Noah preaching. We don't hear that at all. But here was a man. God knew who he was. That's the point of this passage of Scripture. God's able to deliver the righteous. He knows those who love the truth and who desire to see his glory in this world. My brothers and sisters, wherever the world may go, I don't know. Can I call you to be faithful in your day? Can I call you to stand for Christ?
Can I call you to be grieved not only over the sins of a, of a society? Can I call you to be grieved over your sins and my sins, our own personal sins? And for whatever grief we experience and for whatever condemnation we may see, let's not forget how we opened up this sermon. Turn ye, turn ye, why will ye perish? God says to you. And so I set before you the Lord Jesus Christ. I set before you the signal of God's mercy to you. Jesus Christ, bleeding and dying for sinners. Jesus Christ, suffering death. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, giving to you and me the stamp of God's approval on all that he did. He was successful in doing, and now he offers that to you.